Last week, we talked about how the church is on offense and not on defense. And that set up this whole series. And if you're not aware, you can now go on the Northside Medina website and listen to the messages from the previous week if you miss one. Uh, We're not videoing here yet. Uh, Hopefully that vision is in the future. But at least we've got to the point that you can push a button and listen to it while you're driving uh, through your smartphone or whatever that may be. And we shared a verse last week. And it's a verse of scripture that I've often seen hanging up on a nursing home wall. I've seen it posted on a sign outside of a church building. It's the words of Jesus from John 10.10, where it says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, usually when you see that, there is a different way it's worded. It looks like this, dot, 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 I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. There's always those three dots behind it when they show the verse. And if you correct, you understand that those three dots indicate usually a piece of the verse has been left out. And it's usually done so because that part of the verse doesn't really matter for the verse and for the text to make sense. Yet if you look at the words of Jesus in John 10.10, I think you'll find out those three dots stand for some pretty disturbing words. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. But before that, he said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Now I can see why you would want to leave that out. Right? That's not exactly what you want to see hanging on great grandma's wall in the nursing home. Right? It's not something you want to see as you walk into a church. It doesn't make you feel welcome. It doesn't make you feel comfortable and all warm and fuzzy. But it is incomplete, that verse is, without the completion of it. It would be like a job description that says you'll work 80 hours a week tasting different kinds of dog food for $100,000 a year. But in the ad, they simply put taste tester, $100,000 a year. You'd you'd like to know what you were about to taste, correct? You need all of it together. The good news is Jesus has come that we may have life, have it abundantly, have it to the full. But the reality is we are being opposed in this life. There is a thief who comes to steal, kill and destroy. C.S. Lewis writes, there are two equal and opposite heirs into which our race, in which our race, read this with me. (laughs) Let's read this together. There are two equal and opposite heirs into which our race can fall about the devils. So I want to be careful 
my fear throughout the whole preparation of this and the delivery of this message is not to give Satan too much attention, not to give him too much of the spotlight. That's what he wants. But I don't ever want us to leave worship thinking more about Satan than about God himself. Satan would delight in that. But I don't think most of us fall into the category that C.S. Lewis talked about where we dwell more on Satan and the evils of this world than we do on God himself. Instead, we would probably fall into what C.S. Lewis calls the materialistic one. We get so caught up in what is seen that we go through life naively unaware of what is unseen and the supernatural forces that are all around us. I think most of us would want it to stay that way, but God would not. I mean, is it really necessary for us to come to church and talk about Satan? Is it really necessary? Wouldn't our time be better off spent talking about family, relationships, personality issues, habits? George Barnes says this, while almost every American believes in the existence of God, 60% of Americans would say Satan is not a real being, that he is just like a symbol for evil. He's like a logo for sin. And if that's how you feel about Satan, you never really think about him, he's happy with that. He would prefer to go unaware in this world of you and I's acknowledgement of him, that we would be unaware of his strategy in his attempt, intent in this world. But what I want us to do in the next few minutes is become more aware of his presence and his intentions in this life. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Job. If you don't, your smartphone, the book of Job. The book of Job is where we usually turn to talk about sufferings in this world. And so it's no coincidence in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, it talks more about Satan than any other passage within the entire Bible. In Job chapter 1, we find Job living a pretty good life. And you would expect that from someone who's honoring God with their life. Job 1, 2, listen to the way it describes his life. Job had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 5,000 yoke of oxen, 500 donkey, and had a large number of servants. The first intention I want you to see of Satan is Satan intends to distract me with what is momentary. Back then... If they had TVs back then, there would have been a show called The Fabulous Life of Job because he was doing pretty well. But here's the question, does that bother Satan? Does it bother Satan when we're successful? Does it bother Satan when we're prosperous? Does it bother Satan when we live a carefree lifestyle? I think most of the time he's fine with that. You see, we tend to think of wealth and health as blessings from God, and they are. But make no mistake about it, those same things can be used as potent weapons in the hands of Satan. 
Satan's first intention is to distract you and I with what is momentary. If I'm caught up with the temporary, then I will have no time for the eternal. Let me say that again. If I'm caught up with the temporary of this life, I will have no time for the eternal. If all my needs are being met, if everything's okay in my life, then I have no reason to ever depend on God. Satan's intention is to turn our focus on what's urgent in this life, what's temporary in this life, what's trivial, trivial in this life. Because if he can distract us, he's got us. If he can distract us, he's got us. And a lot of people have bought into this. We bought into the thinking that life is all about meeting the deadline, getting the paperwork done on time, Life is all about getting dinner on the table, finishing homework, catching up on the latest TV show, or not missing the big sporting event. And with all those things that are temporary in this life, Satan plays us into his hand, and he distracts us from God's purpose in eternity because we're focused on the now. You ever experience this? You sit down and you're determined to have a prayer time. At least string five, ten sentences together before you get into something else. You bow your head and you start to pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've given me. It's a beautiful time of the year. The flowers are starting to bloom. The grass is growing. My neighbors have cut their grass. All of them have cut their grass except for me. If I don't go out and cut my grass soon, I'm going to have to rake. The next thing you're aware of is you're outside cutting the grass and the prayer time has stopped. Been there? When you're driving in the car, you're driving in the car and you begin to pray. The radio is barely on. You start to pray. The next thing you know, the windows are cranked down, the radio is blasting, and you're singing at the top of your lungs, I've got you, babe, right? Or maybe. Maybe you're in worship, and the time comes for communion, and you're intent on spending this time with God. You begin to pray, prepare, you look at the juice and you look at the bread and think, man, I wonder where we're going to eat lunch today. I'm pretty hungry. I wish, I wish that piece of bread was a little bit bigger. You see my point? Satan's heart and his desire is when you begin to focus your intentions on God, he takes your intentions and focus on the temporary things of this world. The momentary things. The Bible talks about how the word of God is being choked out by the pleasures of this world. Philip Yancey points out in his book, he writes this. The greatest enemy of a hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. 
It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, his most deadly weapons are not the poison of evil, but the simple pleasures of earth. They are your basic meat and potatoes, coffee and gardening, reading and decorating, traveling, investing, TV watching, internet surfing, shopping, exercising, and collecting, and so on. They are the things in this world that draw our attention and our focus away from God, and we spend more time doing those things and prioritizing those things than we do worshiping the one who created us. See, Satan doesn't have to convince you that there is no God or there is no heaven or there is no hell if he can just convince you there is no hurry. Let me say that again. Satan does not have to convince you that there is no God or there is no heaven or there is no hell if he can just convince you there is no hurry. If he can distract you, then he's won. But Job was different. Job didn't let the worldly wealth and success take him away. Instead, Job was blameless and pure. But then in verse 8, there's a conversation between God and Satan in the heavenly realms. Beginning in verse 8, it says this. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Is no one on earth like him? He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Second intention of Satan is Satan intends to destroy me with suffering, with suffering. In the next few chapters of Job, we see some ways that Satan intends to destroy us. He can't, if he can't distract us, then he's going to destroy us with suffering. And the book of Job reveals a few ways he can do that. One is with nature. Satan kills Job's children, you remember. Verse 19, chapter 1, says, Suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them. A messenger says to Job, they're dead. They're dead. Satan, he seems here to have the power over nature, over the wind and what will happen. And that shouldn't surprise us. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, again, I want to be careful. When we talk about Satan and being in control of nature, if, we don't, if we're not careful about this, we'll think he's behind every disaster. We'll think Satan is behind every sneeze. You know, that's not necessarily true. But he is involved in suffering in this world. What caused COVID-19? What caused it? Well, a whole lot of ideas of what caused it. Some, you know, as well as I, I've heard people blame God for it. 
God did this. God brought it on us. I've heard people blame sin. But you know, I don't think I've heard anybody ever blame Satan. Hmm. And Satan would love us to blame God for suffering and sickness that he's brought on. Another tool Satan uses is physical disease and sickness. Job 2.7 says Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, but then it says he went back to ask permission if he could harm Job personally. God grants him that. Satan afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of pottery, broken pottery, and scraped himself as he sat among the ashes. This begins to wear Job down, but it totally destroys his wife. His wife, remember, simply says, Job, why don't you curse God and die? She gives up. Maybe Satan has attacked you some way with suffering, with sickness, but maybe he has attacked someone else, someone you love, someone who's hurting, suffering. And that is a way of wearing us down. And ultimately, if we're not careful, it has a way of stealing our faith away and drawing our attention away from God and almost against God if we're not careful. Now, before we keep going with some more of these tools of Satan, let's push the pause button. I want to remind you of the fact of how much more God is powerful than Satan is. The two of them aren't even in the same league. Let me remind you, we know that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful, and Satan's power is limited. Remember, God is unstoppable. The church is unstoppable. The two aren't even close. Putting God up against Satan is like putting a high estate up against your local junior high football team. All right? It's not even going to be close. God is omnipresent, but Satan can only be in one place at one time. God is omniscient, meaning God is all-knowing, but Satan's knowledge is limited. Just like you and I, only a certain amount has been revealed to him. So be careful as we talk and as we spend time on him. God and Satan aren't even on the same platform. It's not even close. In the book of Job, there's one other thing Satan uses. He uses wicked people. Job 1.17 says, a messenger comes to Job and says, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put your servants to the sword. So Satan uses wicked people to destroy us. But get this, the real enemy the real enemy that you and I have is not in flesh and blood. Ephesians, Paul talks about this. He says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Satan will use people to try to destroy us, groups of people to try to destroy us, but remember, your real enemy is not your unbelieving spouse who refuses to come to worship with you. 
Your real enemy is not the professor who belittles your faith and says faith is for weak-minded people. Your real enemy is not the person your child is dating, trying to undermine everything you've instilled in them. Your real enemy is not the coworker who stabs you behind your back. Your real enemy is not the relative who gossips about you. Your real enemy is not your ex-wife who's been unfaithful. Your real enemy is not your ex-husband who's been abusive to you. Your real enemy is not that group of people who tries to shut down everything conservative and everything Christian. No. Satan would love to fill your heart, my heart, with bitterness, with hatred towards someone else. When Jesus says, you ought to love your enemies. You ought to love your enemies. They're not flesh and blood. Final intention. Satan intends to discourage me with accusations. Accusations. If Satan can't distract me with what's temporary, if he can't destroy me with suffering in this life, then he will do his best to discourage me and defeat me with accusations. One of Satan's 40-some-odd names within the scriptures is the accuser. Say it with me. The accuser. He loves to constantly, with no basis, no reasoning, accuse you. He'll constantly accuse you throwing out accusation after accusation that goes around in your head. Anybody ever been falsely accused of something? It takes a toll on you, doesn't it? And it's not true, but it continues to eat at you the more you're accused and more you're accused. That's what Satan loves to do. Accusation with no basis and begins to eat away at us. The Bible says that Satan is in heaven and he stands before God and he just accuses you, accuses you, accuses you. He accuses Job. He uses his wife. He uses his friends. They first try to encourage him, but eventually they say, hey, Job, God's just trying to get even with you. Why don't you curse God and die? Just as we have an accuser, though, the Bible assures us that we have an advocate, an advocate. Yes, Satan will try to accuse you. He'll say, you know, God's not listening to your prayers, not after what you've done. He'll say, God's not going to forgive you another time for that sin. What are you thinking about? He delights you in accusing you and saying, you know, if God really loved you, he wouldn't let that happen to you in your life. After all you've done, look at how he treats you. Accuse you, accuse you, accuse you. But there's an advocate who speaks on our behalf. Satan intends to distract us with the temporary Jesus intends to focus us on the eternal. Satan intends to destroy us with suffering, and Jesus intends to strengthen us with suffering. Satan intends to discourage you with accusations, where Jesus intends to encourage you with grace 
and truth. There's a battle in the book of Revelation beside the battle of Armageddon. This battle takes place in Romans chapter 12, or Revelation chapter 12. And in that story, God bleeds. God bleeds. On that day, the lamb defeated the dragon. Jesus defeated Satan. And it says God bled. For the ultimate victory to take place, a sacrifice had to be made. And that sacrifice was none other than the very Son of God. God bled so that you and I could be declared victors forever over all Satan's intention and over all the supernatural powers that might roam this world. They have no shot because of the suffering Savior on the cross. That Jesus suffered, bled, and died, and we know he was buried, and three days later, conquered the grave. And in that, he defeated death, and he defeated the evil one once and for all. And so every week, we try to really focus, really focus, block out all the temporary, all the momentary, and focus on the eternal. And we do that by taking these emblems, piece of bread, some juice, but oh, so much more, representing actually Jesus' body, brutally beaten, spit upon, abused for you and me. The juice representing, yeah, God bled. God himself bled through his son to forgive us of our sins. So this morning I'm gonna pray and I want you to give it your full attention more so than you have in a long, long while to focus on this, on Jesus and the fact that God bled to forgive you and give you the ultimate victory over Satan once and for all. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much. God, that you are far superior, you are far more, far more powerful than Satan himself. And God, as Satan roams this world, and God, he even roams this place, God, we pray for your power. We pray for your presence and your Holy Spirit to move. God, as we hold these emblems and we're about to partake them, God, as we swallow the bread and swallow the juice, Father, may we remember that you bled for us. You died for us. And God, may we grab a hold of that power, that power that's available to us still this day by your spirit who lives within us. We take these emblems now in memory and in honor of your sacrifice.